House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Guest on the line, um, his uh, recent book called Burned, and it's a story of murder and the crime that wasn't. Um, the author is Edward Humes. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, uh, okay. So, Ed, um, let's let's get a little background on you. You haven't been on the show for so for listeners. Um, how long have you been writing, and what got you into the true crime uh, area in in books? Well, I've been writing uh, since actually before I graduated college, um, starting in newspapers. Uh, and one of the main uh, beats that I covered as a newspaper reporter was uh, was the courthouse. And so, before I even started writing books, I had been to probably thousands of of uh, trials and hearings and such. And you know, there's that great observation uh, Calvin Trillin uh, made years ago about why reporters love trials and writing about them and sitting at them because it's the only place where someone is asked a question and they actually have to answer. They cannot say no comment. They cannot say, uh, you know, tell an unrelated anecdote or self-serving thing. They actually have to answer the, the question that they're asked. And uh, I found that that process sort of, uh, you know, that's, I don't know, nirvana for journalists though, to, to be in that situation and the stories that usually emerged from that Crucible were, were generally pretty, pretty fascinating. So that led me to my first temporary leave of absence from newspapers in uh, in 1989 to write my first book, and kind of been doing it ever since. They finally, you know, packed up my desk and sent my my stuff because I never went back. Yeah. <laughs> you never went missing. Body snatched. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was missing, but they not in action. They knew where I was. Yeah. Well, uh, and burned. Now, how did you come across this story? Well, that started, um, I was interested in the work of the California Innocence Project. They had had, for a very small and woefully underfunded operation, they'd been having remarkable success overturning convictions of, of people who shouldn't have been in prison but were, usually on very serious cases, murder or, or um, nearly as serious major sex crimes and so forth. And using a number of techniques, but mostly the power of DNA, which is not just a powerful way to catch guilty people, but also for proving their innocence. Um, and they've had a lot of luck with that, but they've taken on other cases, too. And as I was sitting there just watching how this sort of reverse detective work that the, that the lawyers and, and volunteers uh, do uh, at an innocence project... Um, I, I discovered this case that they had tackled of Joanne Parks, who was accused in 1989 of, of setting fire to her house deliberately and um, trapping her three young children inside. And it was a sensational murder case in Los Angeles when it was tried in the early 1990s, and she's been in prison ever since. But um, as with so many of our other forensic sciences in recent years, there's been serious questions raised about the, the so-called fire science that was used to convict her. You know, the, and the, what seemed like scientific certainty in 1989 has, has been revealed as, as basically guesswork in disguise. And, and a, a 
prominent expert who trains fire investigators how to uh, how to investigate fires properly uh, said uh, in testimony uh, at a recent hearing in her case that there was not only no evidence that she had committed a crime but there was no scientific evidence to suggest any crime had been committed at all in the oh wow house so that's why the subtitle is the crime that wasn't well what is it it's just kind of what draws you into writing um, because there's plenty of stories out there so when you choose a story and decide you're going to write on it um, what's the foundation like what is the criteria for you It, it, it varies, but generally, it's uh, I, I like crime stories that first have compelling characters. In this case, I've found the, the attorney working at the Innocence Project, uh, an intriguing person, uh, very dedicated, and and actually, you know, you think, oh, defense attorneys, it's completely different, but from people in law enforcement. Um, but actually, I. I She's like the mirror image of uh, of a tough homicide detective. It's just that she's sort of trying to unravel uh, the case rather than put it together. But the work is very much the same, and, it, and it's fascinating to watch. Um, there, I like the character of Joanne Parks, but she's kind of ambiguous. Um, she, she's she has no constituency. She wasn't a particularly um, uh, personable person. She's been institutionalized uh, from, from spending more time in prison than she's spent out now. Although there, she had no prior offenses before before this uh, arrest in the in the arson case. Uh, but because this isn't a DNA case, you can't just march in and say there is um, absolute evidence of her innocence. It's it's there's some ambiguities in it, and I find that a more interesting story than 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 absolute certainty. And the other thing I like about a, a crime story is often, I think the best ones, have a, have a backstory, a context that involves larger uh, issues of, of, of interest to everyone. In this case, it's, it's how our forensic sciences have so little science behind many of them. And, and that's an important issue because it affects, affects all of us in, in one way or another. So uh, what happens in this particular case when they when they took her to trial and convicted her uh, it was based on what they thought was fire evidence at the time correct so now since then has it been proven that it, it that it's totally incorrect or is it just not reliable like what was the final result on the way they did fire investigation well in that era there were many beliefs that fire investigators had sort of just assembled anecdotally over the years uh, and passed on to their uh, their next generation of fire investigators and uh, basically it addressed ways in which you can interpret what's left when a uh, after a fire occurs, the way certain uh, patterns appear on the floors and walls and ceiling, the speed with which the fire seems to proceed through the through the uh, through a, a dwelling or a business, uh, what the indicators of an accelerant being used, like gasoline or some other flammable liquid, being 
uh, doused onto a fire, and, and there was a lot of beliefs about that, and they called it arson science, but there wasn't any actual scientific research behind it. If you peel back how they know what they said they knew, there was, there was nothing there uh, in terms of laboratory testing or the, the fallibility or, or lack of errors, any kind of examination of how reliable uh, an expert in fire science was when um, they went into a house and reached, reached a conclusion about what caused the fire. Was there any validation for them even being able to tell what they said they could tell? There wasn't. Uh, and that only has recently come to, to light, um, uh, mainly through the findings of... Um, Organizations like the National Academy for Sciences and a presidential commission in 2016 that began probing into forensic sciences in general. All this, all these magical and seemingly dispositive techniques we, that are lionized on shows like CSI, the CSI franchise, um, you know, where, where the crime gets solved by comparing bullets or, or hair and fibers in, you know, in 42 minutes, uh, leaving room for commercials <laughs> over the six minutes. None of that actually works that way. And oftentimes it doesn't work. And fire science is almost a poster child for overreach in terms of what we, what was thought they could prove, uh, at the time, at the time in 1989. And it's been a slow realization that a lot of that just was mythology. Yeah, so in this particular case, what is it that they, said she did, and I mean this in the way of um, if there was no real evidence of uh, uh, gasoline or, you know, uh, they didn't know exactly what she did to cause the fire, what is it they presume she did? Yeah, that's really interesting because one of the classic claims when, when a defendant is brought to trial is if they keep changing their story, it must not, you know, they must be lying, right? And you can't be believe anything they say. Well, the prosecution just kept changing their story about what caused the fire, but you know, apparently they are not held to the same standard as a defendant because that didn't seem to trouble anyone. But basically what they said was that um, when this house burned, it burned very fast and very hot, and you know, fire is the one, when it is a crime, it's the one Arson is the one crime that you know destroys the evidence of the crime as it progresses, and there's a phenomenon once uh, a fire reaches a certain level of intensity called flashover, where literally every combustible surface and substance in a room, including ash flying in the air, uh, catches fire. Uh, it's it's a fatal event when that occurs if someone is is trapped in a room that enters the flashover phase, and that can happen within five minutes or less of the start of a fire under the right conditions. The problem with a fire scene in which flashover occurs and is sustained for more than just a few seconds is that it, it basically makes, makes any intelligible evidence disappear. It's very hard to make an accurate read of the burn patterns and so forth once flashover occurs. Hmm. So a key part of the testimony in the original trial against Joanne Burns was that flashover did not occur. It did not preach that point, and therefore um, the uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department arson investigator, who was the lead expert in the case, 
could march into court and confidently testify that he could read those burn patterns like a book and could tell that um, that fire had been deliberately set. And initially, for one year leading up to the trial, he said that Joanne Parks had started the fire by sabotaging uh, electrical extension cords in such a way that they caught fire in the living room uh, and that just to just to make sure the kids were uh, uh, burned to death she also set a fire by hand in the uh, one of the children's bedrooms uh, later uh, as the trial date approached uh, an electrical engineer was asked to examine those electrical cords to uh, to, to, to bolster the idea that they started the fire and upon testing and examination the engineer said well these cords burned from the outside in not from the inside out which meant they were consumed in the fire they didn't start the fire and he conclusively determined that that was not the cause well the whole reason for suspecting arson in the first place was this supposed incendiary device this this young waitress constructed um, and so instead of stepping back and saying boy everything we thought about how this fire started and where it started is wrong they said oh well if it didn't start because she sabotaged those wires she must have just taken matches and set the fire right on that same spot on top of the uh, electrical cords and so they didn't change anything they didn't rethink anything um, oh wow and <laughs> but is that and, a and problem just capture, now we know flashover did occur in there every expert uh-huh. modern expert has looked at it, so, oh yeah flashover uh, it makes it very difficult to make these kinds of calls Wow. But isn't that a problem in, in convictions uh, on a whole right now? It, it, we see that in a lot of cases that are coming out, such as this, where people were convicted wrong, and uh, we find out later and how the policing kept on pushing with their theory, no matter what evidence was thrown at them. Yeah, you know, they used to call that tunnel vision. Uh, now it has a has a more scientific term, interestingly enough, uh, cognitive bias uh, or confirmation bias or expectation bias. And, and this is another hot topic in um, the forensic community now and what role, if any, it plays in, in wrongful uh, convictions. So there's a fascinating setup to the to the Burns case. This is another reason why I think this is just an amazing story. The initial uh, walkthrough uh, by the first arson investigator on the scene of the house made a, a preliminary conclusion pending further investigation that it was an accidental fire, possibly electrical in origin. But there was no thinking that this was a crime at first. And, uh, you know, there was extensive news coverage and Joanne Parks' tearful Tearful face was was on every uh, news chat, you know, newscast in, in the city of Los Angeles, and uh, and she was treated like the like a grieving mother, not as a criminal. But three days after the fire and all this press coverage, somebody calls up and uh, the police and says, "Well, I used to be Joanne's best friend, and let me tell you, that was no accident. She killed those children," um, and went on to tell this story of how. Uh, the uh, uh, conversation in which Dylan Parks lamented uh, that, that um, 
having three children at her young age and that if only uh, one of them had died in an accident, she could collect a million dollars in uh, uh, insurance coverage. Uh, there had been a minor fire in, in a previous apartment they lived in, and she was referring to that. Uh, nobody was hurt or injured or anything, but said, oh, if only little Jessica had been trapped in there. Supposedly, this is what Joanne Parks said, and the police heard that and were horrified. And so they called in a different arson investigator, and instead of letting him just go in and taking another look, they briefed him on all this hideously um, negative information about Joanne Parks and, and her desire for her children to die. And these new arson investigators saw signs of arson everywhere <laughs> when they walked through this very same house. Nobody saw any such thing. Uh, and what's controversial now, but nobody gave a second thought then, is, gee, if we want somebody to go in and make a scientific determination of physical evidence in a crime scene, do we really want them to know this biasing information in advance? Could that color their judgment? Um, who knows? But wouldn't it be better to make sure that it doesn't and, and exclude that unnecessary extraneous information from uh, uh, from the supposed scientific uh, uh, analysis. Uh, so that's that's how this idea of cognitive bias comes in. When you have to make a judgment, gee, does this fire burn pattern show something suspicious or not? Well, if you know all, all this... Uh, you already know you're supposed to find that this person did it. Uh, that can color your judgment. It's happened with fingerprints. It's happened with dental comparisons. It's happened over and over throughout the wherever forensic analysis analysts are you know kind of contaminated by extraneous information like that. The kicker is that that friend uh, never even testified in the trial because her information was either like laughable, incoherent, or were. Uh, um, uh, Disproven. None of it held up. None of it was actually used in the trial, but had colored the entire investigation. So, yeah, is that what turned the public against her as well? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the prosecutor got up in open court and declared her one of the most heinous murders Los Angeles had ever seen, and um, there was a lot of lengthy. There was a two-year delay between the fire and the uh, charging, so um, that the, there had been sympathetic coverage initially, and also coverage, by the way, uh, that uh, that um, the slumlord who owned the property that caught fire was notorious for poor conditions and unsafe conditions in uh, his many properties. Um, that line of investigation just was stillborn once these these the tunnel vision focused on parks. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we've we've seen it many many times in in different uh, crimes um, that you mentioned tunnel vision. They they get one suspect in their um, in their view, and that confirmation bias kicks in, which is the tendency to search for things that confirm your hypothesis, your pet hypothesis. It's not even an evil thing oh, so no. much. It's it's not intentional. It's it's just human nature to do. Uh, to head off in that direction that you think is correct. Yes, and th thank you for making that point because I, I, I think that's important. No one is claiming, and certainly I w I'm not claiming that there's, there was malfeasance or deliberate, a deliberate uh, covering up of the truth in this case. Um, you know, these investigators did what they were trained to do. Um, 
if you ask them were you biased, they say no, of course not. I mean, it, it, it's it's not it's not that kind of bias. We all have this problem. It's, mm-hmm. it's how our brains are wired um, to to connect the dots, to to find patterns, and that's greatly influenced by our our prior knowledge. And the, the famous example of this case happened with the, the Madrid terrorist bombing back in 2004. Um, where the vaunted FBI identification unit, uh, the fingerprint, the world's leading fingerprint experts, uh, linked uh, three different examiners, or maybe it was four, linked the prints found on a unexploded bag with a bomb inside it to a Portland, Oregon attorney. Oh wow! Who who had converted to Islam and and had, I guess defended some some characters that the uh, feds considered were shady. So he was a person of interest, and they uh, they matched his fingerprints to the crime scene and gave that information to the, the Spanish authorities and to Interpol and locked this guy up for 17 days. And uh, nobody could you know he was in deep deep lockup. Uh, and then. Um, Madrid authorities called the FBI and said, "Well, we don't, we don't know why you're holding this uh, uh, this, this Portland dude uh, because we positively matched those prints to uh, an Algerian terrorist, and he's under, he's in custody here." Um, and they they just got it wrong. They knew wow. all that. They knew he was the suspect, and they had a low quality print with you know with only certain points of comparison that were solid, and the the first examiner to look at was one of the senior best guys there uh, at the FBI identification unit, and he made the call, and then it was reviewed, as, as is always the case, by multiple other examiners. But they were all had been mentored by this one who made the initial call, and they all knew he had found a match before they looked. So they all found a match, too. There you go. And next thing you know, we're not... Uh, we're not uh uh, inoculating our babies for measles. <laughs> yes. Well, exactly. You know, there's there has never. Well, it's now begun, but there was never any testing to see how accurate human beings are in matching poor quality fingerprints. Yeah. Well, there is an error rate for everything a human being does, and it may be a small error rate, but we know that there have been errors, and there have been wrongful convictions as in addition to this false arrest in the in the Madrid case, um, and and this is, and yet we have this feeling that uh, fingerprint evidence is uh, irrefutable. Yeah. Well, most of the time it is. It is great evidence, but it's not perfect, and and. Recognizing that and recognizing that the, the fallibility is an important part to making sure we get the just result. All so, science is, is in a way subjective. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, scientists will say we're constantly trying to screen out um, the subjective or when it's yeah. unavoidable as it is when you're trying to match things to, to minimize it. And one way you minimize that is to remove the contributing factors of cognitive bias. Right. These examiners should not should have been testing these fingerprints in the blind without knowing who belonged to what what the stakes were because they did do blind testing with the same examiners and the same prints without telling them they were the same and none of them found a match. There you go. Know what it was. So that simple step, isolating 
the analysts and the scientists from the extraneous uh, information is critical to ensure that we don't have these kinds of mistakes, or at least to minimize them. Uh, and yet, think about who controls all our forensic sciences? Pretty much all of them. Yeah. Either a police department or, or it's, you know, analog in terms of the FBI or, or a sheriff's department or, um, the, the, the prosecuting agencies. So, so there's, there's, you a built, feel good a about, built in, there's a built-in agenda already. Would you feel good about going into the World Series where, the, you know, <laughs> the other team got to pay and supervise and manage and fire and hire all the umpires? Would that work for you? No. Uh, there'd always be a doubt that it wasn't on the up and up because one side had all the power. Um, and if we propose, well, let's let the defense attorneys be in charge of all our forensics, uh, people would think that would be an outrage. That would be absurd, and it would be absurd. Why isn't it absurd that the uh, <laughs> the other side controls all the process, all the players in what is supposed to be a dispassionate, unbiased scientific review? So, yeah, yeah. Great I mean, answer to that question, by the way. <laughs> I think, in, yeah, in these times, I think that uh, people do not trust. Um, any sort of government agencies too much right now. Um, well, even if they're operating in good faith, which yeah. I, I would say they almost always are when it comes to doing these tests, they're still. This is how it, how it typically works. You get a detective or you get a prosecutor, and they call up the coroner's office or the crime lab, or you name it, and say, "Hey, we got this." We got this guy. We know he's good for for this murder. Or he's good for this rape, or he's good for this, you know, forgery. Whatever. Uh, he she set the fire. You got you know. What it do you already got? sets that narrative in the, in the in the scientist's brain. Yeah. What do you got for us? Um, and and many of these aren't scientists, but they're technicians who consider themselves part of law enforcement. So mm. first they wanna. They want to help. They want to achieve justice. They want, and 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 that's their job. That's their mission. But it puts them in a difficult position where they're influenced in ways that are are profound, and yet just seem like normal communications. Hmm. So now the California Innocence Project is challenging Park's conviction, and, and so so where do, where does that stand right now? Well, there was a, a hearing, and, and the way uh, it's called the habeas corpus process, it's the great writ, it's a huge part of the uh, uh, justice system uh, since, since before uh, there was a United States. And the principle is that um, the state can be challenged um, to prove that its evidence is valid in a criminal conviction. And... Um, and this was how uh, used this this writ was used for by William Penn to uh, get his freedom from uh, you know the Tower of London. Uh, so it's a it's a bedrock legal principle, and in this case, it there has to be a showing of that there's a problem with Joanne Parks's conviction or anybody else's, and it, once that legal determination is made by a, a trial court judge, a superior court judge in California, which is the level of court where the trial occurs in the first place. That finding was made, and so it led to a hearing, and to briefs, and to expert testimony uh, about what happened in the um, 
in the fire that killed Joanne Parks' three young children, ages one, two, and four. Uh, and a hearing stretched out over a year. And it was, it was fascinating, but it really came down to uh, each side getting experts in there to make, um, render a scientific opinion uh, in the case as to whether or not the original findings were valid. And uh, as often happens in these cases, the, the, uh, each side had experts that radically disagreed with the other sides. And, uh, there was only one expert in the case that did actually had scientific data and, and um, basically created a, a map of, of what you could and couldn't tell uh, in that house when that fire occurred. And it was a tiny little house. It was under 600 square feet. It was a converted garage turned into a small apartment. And it just went up like a matchbox. Wow. Uh, but the judge, because the other experts disagreed and said, oh, no, well, flashover occurred, that was false evidence in the case, but you could still tell how this fire started. And, and they had no science to back that up. They just said, no, oh, no, and so our years of experience tells us that this, this uh, was, was arson. The judge interpreted that by saying, hey, you know, these, these vaunted experts in fire science uh, still can't agree after 30 years. It's all controversial now, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pick a side. I'm not gonna oh, disturb the jury's verdict until, uh, unless and until the fire, uh, science community can agree in, unanimously on what, uh, what happened here. Uh, and basically he punted the case. And, uh, so far it's been, just recently the California Court of Appeal without comment, you know, in one page, uh, declined to uh, review the case, so now it goes to the state supreme court. That's what's happening right now. Wow. Um, now, if they decide to uh, retry or to overturn this, um, where where would it go? Like, and and how does this affect other cases that were prosecuted with the same sort of fire evidence? Uh, well, depend. Well, if it is, uh, if there is a, uh, a ruling, an opinion that um, discusses the, the problems in this case issued by the state supreme court, that would have a, a statewide impact. And because the California Supreme Court is influential in the rulings of other courts around the country, it could have a greater effect. If it prece- proceeds beyond the state supreme court into the federal court system then it's possible effects on investigations throughout the country um, start to accumulate depending on what the result is um, I'd say that in terms of, of, of bringing these issues out into the light and stimulating discussion in the um, among uh, law enforcement agencies and fire investigators and so forth it's part of a uh, a larger process in, in which forensic science reforms are are happening. Uh, I think, even though the the system is reluctant to concede that errors were made, that uh, it's a, and then letting people out of prison, that there's there's that's no matter how poor the forensic evidence, it's generally not uh, something that. 
police and prosecutors easily accept, even with that sort of built-in barrier, the new investigations that are occurring are, and, and the next generation of investors are cognizant of, of these issues in cases like the Parks case and have changed the way they do business moving forward. So that's a positive outcome. Wow. Um, now, when you work uh, or talked with the California Innocent Projects and you're doing research, do you find that they are they just inundated with cases like this? Do they have is there a lot of cases and and I'm just I'm trying to think how do they decipher what's um, real and what's not? Uh, that must take a lot of work. Well, that's a it's a fascinating process, and that's one of the things I was interested in because yeah, they uh, they hear from thousands of every year, thousands and thousands of of convicts or the families of of people sent to prison who don't believe that their uh, loved ones committed the crime. Uh, sometimes they get ref- referrals from from trial lawyer, the lawyers who lost, but think that their clients uh, were wrongfully convicted. Uh, they only take a very small number of of cases among, among this huge deluge of, of material they receive, and they they go through them all. Um, many of them are on their face, not something that either either the facts don't support a wrongful conviction or the law doesn't. And they need both to be uh, something they think it might be that you know, there could be a strong case to be made for both or they won't take the case uh, so out of the thousands they get every year they, they may take on the, you know, 25 at a time um, and work on those for years in some cases they uh, so they're very selective which is kind of interesting it's, it's different than another kind of legal operation it would just represent any any accused person who walks in the door mm. they actually are representing people they think uh, um, are either legally innocent or factually innocent. And those are two different things, of course. Hmm. Uh, what do you hope people get out of the book? When, when, when they finish reading it, uh, what is it that you want them to walk away with? I, I, I think they, um, one thing would be, it would be good for them to realize is that the, uh, you know, the, well, the CI stuff is <laughs> that's just a fictional show, and in fact, the um, our forensic sciences are uh, are not in the shape that we want them to be. You know, when you have a uh, some a heinous murder like the like the Parks case, uh, you you would think that the the Investigators and prosecutors wouldn't want to move forward with something like that. It was such a horrible uh, accusation unless they knew everything was rock solid, that the, that the science was beyond uh, challenge. And, and, but that was not the case. Uh, there's more... There's more science behind the stuff in your refrigerator in terms of the testing for for safety and and uh, uh, and health and, and and contents than there is in in this, these practices that are used to send people to prison for life or to death row, um, and, that, and we can do better than that. We know we can do better than that, but yet the, the, the system has been very 
reluctant to course correct. And the impact of this goes beyond you know, murder cases, uh, which is serious enough because if you know, in many cases when uh, when the forensic analysis is wrong and the wrong person gets convicted, that means that the uh, the right person, the real criminal, is still out there. One of the cases the California Innocence Project took on was someone sent to um, prison for being a serial rapist, uh, with a teardrop rapist because of a teardrop tattoo he had on his cheek. And he was in prison for 17 years the, uh, the, uh, before it was shown that the, uh, he was innocent through DNA evidence of the crimes he was committed to um, of doing. And not only that, but while he was prison, uh, in prison, the police knew that the same uh, type of crimes with the same MO were, were still ongoing and that they had not caught the teardrop rapist and they have never caught the teardrop rapist. Uh, so bad things happen when bad forensics is used to uh, send people to prison. Um, yeah. People are denied insurance coverage when their houses are burned because of bad arson investigations. And yeah, I'm just reading about this uh, Luis Vargas, the teardrop rapist. He could have served 55 years to life for these sexual assaults. That's crazy. Yes, and it was bad eyewitness testimony that was the primary fault, and you know, suggestive lineups, and um, witnesses were allowed to change their description at the, you know, under subtle pressure from the from the police uh, or hints given to them and yeah that was a bad case yeah. yeah and and so we all have a vested interest in seeing that that we get this kind of investigation right and it's ironic that it's dna evidence which has excellent science behind it that has not only improved the um, ability of of the authorities to catch catch really bad people but uh, has has revealed these flaws in the other forensic sciences. Uh, about one in four of the thousands of convictions that have been overturned because of DNA and the work of of, of organizations like the California Innocence Project. About a fourth of those are were, the convictions were based at least in part on other forensic uh, conclusions that turn out to be junk science. Oh. Better, I better watch myself now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I'll be in trouble. Um, do you have a website now, uh, Ed, that people can I go do. to? Oh, I okay. do. It's, and it's very easy to remember because it's my name, edwardhumes.com. Excellent. Perfect. And, uh, of course, your book is available in all fine bookstores and online, Amazon, I imagine. Um, and, yeah. Fantastic. Ready? Anywhere you can find a book or an audio book, you can find it. So. Yeah, audio books are the best for us old guys. <laughs> well, well, Ed, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. And uh, the book is called Burned. It's a story of murder and a, the crime that wasn't. Uh, we'll have that linked on our website as well, so people can do one click as they're listening and pick up the book. Oh, thanks. I hope they do. Thanks so much, Ed. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. 
The end. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Wave Media.